welcome back to the Remakers podcast. It is a real pleasure to be back and especially to be diving into kind of a juicy theme in this season. We want to be talking to people about the economy, how it works, how it could work, uh, what it would actually look like to create an economy that works for people and planet instead of adding fuel to some of our literal fires in the climate disaster that we have unfolding. And so today's guests are two people who are going to help us sort of start that, that very conversation. They are Gabrielle Bond and Stephen Hale. Gabrielle Bond is a climate activist and organizer based in Adelaide in South Australia. So she works in the area of progressive economics, bringing together insights from ecological economics with modern monetary theory perspectives on how federal government spending can actually be a force for transformational social and environmental repair. She's the CEO of the charity Modern Money Lab and helps to run their online postgraduate courses in the economics of sustainability. She's also a member of Extinction Rebellion. Stephen is adjunct associate professor at Torrens University and research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. He has a PhD from Flinders University, a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics, and he was a lecturer at the University of Adelaide School of Economics for about 20 years prior to starting the course that they're gonna be talking to you about today. So this conversation covers a lot of ground, and if you've never heard of things or are not that familiar with ideas like donut economics or modern monetary theory, then you might feel like you have dived unwittingly into the deep end of a rather nerdy pool, but don't be afraid. I want you to kind of stick with us because I think it's important for ordinary people as well as journalists and policy experts and campaigners to become a bit more fluent and confident and on the front foot in talking about the economy and how we can make it work for us. I think that it's a debate that is deliberately kind of kept over there above our heads in another room somewhere um, because it's boring and dry and full of technical jargon. And the message to the rest of us is like, well, just let the grown-ups sort this out. Let the professionals run the real world and the rest of you can just go on talking about all the things you'd like us to do. But of course, the professionals haven't been doing such a great job with all of that lately as anyone struggling with the cost of living crisis right now in Australia and other countries around the world knows, not to mention the climate crisis. And so we need some new ideas. And the same thinking that got us through the last 40 years is not going to do a great job of meeting the challenges of the next 40. We need to be ready to be the ones in charge, as Stephen puts it in this conversation, or to quote from Hamilton, to be in the room where it happens. And I really do think economics is the key to that door. So that's what we're going to be exploring a lot on this season of the Remakers podcast. And I hope that this conversation kicks you off and gets you inspired and fired up. Definitely check out the show notes, loads of great links. And without further ado, here's Stephen and Gabrielle. And Stephen Hale to the Remakers podcast. We're so excited to be chatting to you both today about what it creates, well, what it will take to create an economy that's actually fit for purpose and how some very good and smart people like you have been putting your minds to that for a while now. Um, I just wanted to open with a quote that I think really sets the scene for what we're trying to talk about. And it's by the really brilliant writer, Rebecca Solnit. So she's a writer and an historian. And she writes this article for the Washington Post asking, what if climate change meant not doom, but abundance? And so she says, you know, much of the reluctance to do what climate change requires comes from the assumption that it means trading abundance for austerity and trading all of our stuff and convenience for less stuff and less convenience. But what if it meant giving up the things that we're well rid of from deadly emissions to the nagging feelings of doom and complicity in destruction? What if the austerity is how we live now and the abundance could be what is to come. 
And she just goes on to say, we need a large scale change in perspective to reframe climate change as an opportunity, a chance to rethink who we are and what we desire. What if we imagined wealth consisting not of the money we stuff into banks or the fossil fuel derived goods we pile up, but of joy, beauty, friendship, community, closeness to flourishing nature, to good food produced without abusive labor, what if we were to think of wealth as security in our environments and societies and confidence in a viable future? Is it possible? What do you reckon? 100%. Yes, absolutely. Um, I find that really, really inspiring. Um, I hear from our students when I jump on tutorials with them. um, I love it when the conversation comes back to the fact that human beings have imagination and we can actually, we're great storytellers and we can actually imagine a future where of abundance and care. And one of the beautiful um, little inspiring things that I often come back to and that I like to play sometimes at the beginning of an, of an event is a little video that you can find on YouTube, um, which is called A Message from the Future, put out by The Intercept. Yeah, it's pre-COVID. Um, but it is absolutely gorgeous and the artwork and the hot, the, the story and the music is just absolutely beautiful. It's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and a little, um, a little animated story about her catching the bullet train <laughs> um, and looking out at, at this, um, this new world of uh, caring communities and where people have work, meaningful work that they can participate in. And, you know, climate damage, of course, is going to be part of our future world. Um, but we, we, we do have the, the tools we need are there, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think we saw that during COVID too. Like, obviously, COVID was tragic and really, really tough and ruined people's lives. I'm not denying that. Uh, I, think, I think some people, and I include myself in that, um, that period of disruption actually brought us some gifts as well. And that was a return to neighbourliness and um, community care and solidarity and generosity and looking out for people who are vulnerable. And I think that that really sort of um, reminded us all that change is Change brings good and bad, right? And um, the the way the world kind of snapped into one way of being and then basically snapped back into <laughs> business as usual afterwards has been quite eye-opening for me, I think. I wish we could have saved more of what was good about the COVID experience. Hmm. What do you think, Stephen? I'm curious to hear your thoughts, especially because I feel like this is not a kind of conversation that you expect to have with economists. <laughs> like we're taught that this stuff doesn't belong in conversations about the economy, which are very serious and should be left to grownups who understand dry and boring terms. And you've been steeped in that world for your whole career. It goes a little bit both ways, actually. Um, this very much is the sort of thing that um, economists should be talking about, but also um those of us who who have these kind of conversations and have these kind of thoughts, we need to be thinking about how to bring them about as well, which doesn't just mean organising it. It also means politics too, because you actually have to get elected in order to, it's people, we can all change our lifestyles and local communities can can do many things uh, to move towards sustainability. But in the end, this is such a huge crisis that we're facing over the next 10 or 20 years, that we're not going to be able to do that quickly enough without, um, without national governments, in, uh, uh, which is beginning to happen a little bit in Europe, less so in the US and in countries like Australia. Gabby took me back actually to just before the pandemic, we had a conference in Adelaide where Stephanie Kelton, who was Bernie Sanders' chief economic advisor on both his presidential campaigns, um, uh, uh, um, played that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez video that Gabby just referred to as part of a talk she did entitled Paying for a Green New Deal that if people searched on Google, they could probably find Stephanie's talk um, even now. That conference itself that Gabby and I organised had more than 400 people in Adelaide across three days. 
um, was the result in part of us going on one of the um, school children for climate marches a couple of years before and hearing the anguish and uh, um, anger. And I just had the thought, where are the solutions? Um, you're right to be angry and to call for change, but actually maybe someday somebody's going to turn around and say, okay, it's your turn. What are you going to actually do? What happens next? What if you are the prime minister? What are you going to do to change the world now that you've got the power to do it? And I realised that economics education in Australia and actually in most places in the world is not equipped to contribute to that. So the first thing we did was we had a conference where we brought together people we thought could contribute. So we had ecological economists, um, a famous person who at the time was at ANU in Canberra is Robert Costanza, a very famous ecological economist, and Mark Diesendorf, who is well known for his work on renewable energy, and uh, a colleague of ours called Philip Lorne. And we also had people who had a progressive and realistic approach to thinking about the monetary system and the role of government in the economy, and that included Bill Mitchell. Uh, we had AOC's, we had one of AOC's advisors there, Andres Bernal, um, and we had Stephanie there doing a couple of talks too. And um, we were inspired after that. I was inspired to quit my job. And Gabby also quit her job because she used to work for Get Up, the campaigning organization. And we set up a, a charity and we looked around for a university that would let us set up some online global because they had to be available to everybody and we didn't want people flying to Australia to do the course um, qualifications to to meet that need. We ended up um, we ended up going in, up with a partnership going into charity with Torrens Uni, which is one of two private universities in Australia, simply because difficult though this might be to believe, we couldn't find a public university that was interested. But why not? Like, why is economics, as we have become accustomed to it, so resistant to these ideas that the economy has to exist within planetary boundaries or, you know, the GFC? Like, it's not like we haven't had crisis after crisis. So why is it so hard for economics to change that you had to go off and find, like, that it was such a struggle to find a university that would let you teach this course when you were already teaching at Adelaide at the time, weren't you? I was teaching at Adelaide, but very much uh, people who are not part of the orthodoxy of the past 40 years, they are collectively called heterodox economists. They include feminist economists, ecological economists, and all sorts of people with other labels, because there are a variety of different ways of looking um, at, at the world. Um, at, uh, anyway, if you're not orthodox, you're heterodox, and I just got tired after a while of being the token heterodox economist in any university. And also it's important, we, <laughs> we're not gonna bring about change, unfortunately, unless we have, well, you know, there's a, the RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia uh, has just had a review. They're gonna be putting six economists onto a body that's gonna be thinking about interest rates and other issues. Um, at the moment, uh, it's difficult to think of very many candidates who haven't all had exactly the same education and don't agree with each other on precisely everything who would be who would be candidates to go on to that board uh, and what we need and there's actually a demand for this amongst employers and not just in not-for-profits and, and campaigning organizations but even in financial institutions these days we need people uh, who are economists who do have an understanding of planetary boundaries and ecological constraints, and particularly who understand that it isn't just about uh, reorganizing how we do things and slightly changing what we buy. We, we have a problem with the scale of our impact on our ecosystem and just moving towards renewables where there are problems uh, to do with organizing that, there are also potentially problems with resourcing it. I don't mean paying for it. I mean finding the um, uh, minerals, the rare earths, to make it possible 
to electrify the global economy and to have 100% renewables. Uh, well, it's already not quickly enough, but quickly enough to mitigate the effects of, of climate change. And of course, that's only one of the nine planetary boundaries which Earth system scientists identified a little bit more than 10 years ago. So we need to reduce on a macro level globally our impact on the planet. And we need to do that while still allowing the great mass of the global population to um, consume more goods and services than they are at the moment. Because although we are over consuming in the rich world, or many of us are anyway, um, uh, uh, that is not the case with the global south. You're right, though, this is not about austerity. It's about shifting our focus away from growing what people often call gross domestic products to um, improving well-being over time, having other targets like Kate Raworth talks about in donor economics or like some economists talk about when they uh, discuss a measure called the Genuine Progress Indicator, which looks at both benefits and costs of economic activity and includes things like household labour, unpaid work, uh, and covers a range of social and ecological issues. To we can improve the quality of people's lives while reducing our impact on the planet, but we have to train people. So that there are lots of economists out there who understand these things and they find their way into national treasuries and into banks, because we're not going to be abolishing all banks. That's most unlikely <laughs> to, to happen. We're not going to be getting rid of money. We've had it for 5,000 years. It's likely to last a little bit longer. But what we do need to do is change our higher goal in the future. And what we would like is to demonstrate to universities around the world that this is the best way of educating economists with a pluralist approach, starting the very beginning of our first course, we start with planetary boundaries. That's the right place to start. It's not something to tack on at the end of the course or ignore completely. It's and not an what, elective. By the way, if you're interested in some fringe little side route, yeah. That's absolutely right. And that's what Gabby and I, we are literally, and we have for at least two years now, we're working on this seven days a week and pretty much around the clock if we look tired. Um, we've got some great students, um, but we want more of them. And we want then the top universities in the world to put us out of business, mm, make us redundant, copy us so that we don't need to do this anymore. Wow. I was just going to, I was thinking while Stephen was talking about um, how we sort of opened this conversation with, with the idea of imagination and storytelling and a positive vision for the future. And I just wanted to um, mention that Kate Raworth's donut model and the work that's come out of that and that, you know, how they're, they're applying the donut model to cities and, uh, you know, uh, metropolitan areas and states uh, and local areas, um, that is, uh, you know, the imagination that went into kind of um, creating that model and and telling that story in something as simple as two concentric circles, right? This is why we have the tools to solve the problems that we're facing because we have collectively the imagination and the will to do it. Uh, we just need to get our leaders on board with these things. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'd try and bring it back to no, sort no, of where I, we started. I love, that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. And you guys are both already giving me hope and making me want to sign up for the course, which, by the way, is linked to in your show notes or will be so you can um, find out all about that. But, Gabby, I'm curious about how you came to economics as your kind of thing that you're putting your passion and energy into, you know, seven days a week, as Stephen was just saying, because you do have this background of wearing different hats and campaigner, organizer, environmentalist. Like, do you think that people who want to change the world for the better need to get a lot more economically literate and on the front foot? Is this the kind of missing piece for you? Yes, I, I do think that's that you've kind of nailed it there. Um, what brought me into thinking about economics differently, like, like many people, I think I sort of came to activism through uh, being concerned and worried about climate change and its impacts. And economics was kind of a thing that the other side of politics talked yeah. about. Yeah, I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but what brought me into thinking about economics differently was a campaign that GetUp had called Future to Fight For. And it turned out that Stephen was one of the, the kind of brains behind that, <laughs> well, the brain, I suppose, behind, behind that campaign. Uh, and it had five pillars. Uh, hang on, can I just interrupt you? Yeah, go for Joseph, it. <laughs> Joseph Stiglitz, who has a Nobel Prize in economics, is behind the campaign. Oh, so. yeah. You and Joseph Stiglitz. You and Joseph together. Okay, <laughs> we'll let him have a moment. Um, yeah, it had a number of things, but the biggest one were, that, that kind of captured my imagination was the idea of a job guarantee. Mm. And a lot of people have been talking about, uh, like I know the discourse at the moment um, is very much around raising the rate of, of um, welfare payments, which is absolutely necessary. And pe- a lot of people sort of on the progressive side of politics get turned off the idea of a job guarantee because they see it as, you know, you have to work, otherwise you don't, you, you're not valued, so you are your labour. Um, whereas the kind of job guarantee that was in Future to Fight For and the kind of job guarantee that we believe is um, the one that we want to promote is one where you have the option to work, but you don't have to. So quite different, quite a different feeling, quite a different, um, because obviously most people actually do want to work and contribute. Some people want to, but they can't because of all sorts of reasons, caring responsibilities, disability, um, not having the opportunity. Um, But if people want to work, we believe that the federal government should resource them to be able to contribute to their communities by way of full employment. And I think that was that was really clearly set out in that campaign, Future to Fight For. And the more I read about it, the more I thought, yes, this is um, economics has done so much damage, I think. And part of why we are working so hard on, on this alternative is to undo that damage as much as we can. We're only, you know, two people. I know there's others out there doing great work as well, but um, the fight is not even. So if you're thinking about um, becoming more um, educated in progressive economics, we need you on our courses. Um, please come and join us. We're yeah. not only two people, though. There's lots and lots of us. Let's uh, And amongst our team, we've got uh, Colin Schneider, who's a brilliant Austrian ecological uh, economist. We've got some famous, if people have heard of this term, modern monetary theory uh, economist, someone called John Harvey. If people want to look him up on YouTube, he does shows. He calls himself a cowboy economist. He puts <laughs> a cowboy hat on to explain things. And Scott Fulweiler is very well known. There's a young German called Dirk Entz who's working with us. Um, so we've got a, a, a there's a, a w- there's a lot of support for this. Stephanie Kelton has been a great supporter. Um, Fadel Kaboob has a very important job in in Addis Ababa uh, now for a multi uh, uh, multi country governmental organisation pushing to negotiate between the global south and the global north about climate change and climate reparations. All these people have been very very supportive. Um, and we have students from all around the world. Uh, uh, but, yeah, Gabby is right. At the moment, it's very uneven. And partly it's uneven because we've had 40 years of state capture. Um, and, and some of that, I'm afraid, I don't want to sound like a climate change denier or conspiracy theory, but there is, but that has affected economics education too um, because uh, all sorts of groups. I mean, in Australia... You often think, um, to quote from somebody, I can't remember who, that uh, it's difficult sometimes down the years to see where the fossil fuel sectors ended and governments begun. And if you're at the University of Adelaide, where I was for 20 years, one of the best lecture theatres there is named after Santos. Wow, yeah. Uh, and, and there's influence. If you, if, you, if you go down a particular path, um, at least up until very recently, you'd have much more chance of having a good career. Yeah. Uh, and what we're doing is saying this is this is had disastrous consequences. Um, somebody got a Nobel Prize for economics five years ago for arguing that the optimal degree of global warming was four degrees. What? And that six degrees of global warming was better than trying to keep it below two. 
His name is William Nordhaus. You can look up his Nobel Prize speech wow. on YouTube. Our colleague, Steve Keane, who does guest lectures for us, published uh, last year a paper called The Appalling Neoclassical Economics of Climate Change, where he explained all the unrealistic assumptions behind this. Our colleague, Will Steffen, who was a famous uh, Earth System scientist who sadly died a couple of months ago, he, he did a talk after Nordhaus got the Nobel Prize saying uh, four degrees of global warming is not survivable, at least not for oh, anything. It'll be great like... for the economy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, so these are the kind of things, uh, and, and it's obvious that the, the discipline is captured when you can get a Nobel Prize for an argument that one of the leading climate scientists in the world comes out and says, what you're saying is optimal might mean a global population of 2 billion, but not 8 to 10 billion. Uh, 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 catastrophic. This is the kind of thing that we need to fight back against. And we are making progress. Even Gabby talking about a job guarantee as part of this. Gabby's had a campaign group on the side as well as our charity. And one of that group, Dr. Tori Wade, did a, a published a report last year on a federal job guarantee. And that, uh, that work has been influential. The Greens passed through the Tasmanian Parliament a couple of years ago, uh, the, the first measure to pass a parliament in Australia calling for research on what a federal job, job guarantee would involve. Mm. Um, uh, every branch of young labour in Australia is now in favour of a federal job guarantee, except perhaps New South Wales. And they that's just... That's just because in New South Wales, I don't think they've discussed it uh, yet. Members of the federal cabinet said about a federal job guarantee, well, at least it's not a UBI. <laughs> I was going to ask you not, about UBI. Not, Are you not, this? this feels very generational to me. Like it just, you don't want to be all like rage on the old white dudes because, you know, like it's not about picking off one group is the problem, but it does seem like there's a generational shift of people coming through going, well, this is also obvious, but the people in power are really resistant to that change. Like how much traction, because I know that, you know, you're still in the minority in terms of the university courses, although I've, I see more and more the Cambridges and those types offering these kind of six week online kind of mini, you know, they don't really. to sustainable business like you too can come get your certificate and then go consult. But OK, so academia has got a long way to go. And I know, you know, there's people like um, Kate Rayworth at Oxford with her donut economics which we can talk more about for people who don't really know what that is or what we're talking about but like what about the circles of policy is it are we still waiting for generational change I and mean, we've got a labor government in power now he's talking about a more values-based capitalism like are there opportunities for some meaningful change you think in this current group of leadership and what would you be having them do well, one would hope so, although a lot of it is greenwashing at the moment. And remember, uh, we are talking, uh, Mr. Chalmers has been talking about, uh, you're right, a well-being economy. But so far, although this morning in the news, they seem to be stepping back a bit from this. But so far, for example, they have simply refused to raise the job seeker payment yeah. from what is a disgracefully low poverty level in what is one of the world's richest uh, countries and and um, people like Kate do magnificent work but they're not really at the centre of the economics departments of the universities they're in and right. Cambridge might run a course with sustainability in it but if you do an economics degree at the University of Cambridge you won't be doing that it's not in the economics department um, the word sustainability of course is now a great marketing term so you put sustainable into if you are selling stuff when you say <laughs> you're sustainable you'll get more customers if you want to get young people onto your degree before you brainwash them into thinking about something else put the word sustainable in somewhere sometimes uh, there are places in the world where you can study ecological economics there are universities that have strong ecological economics departments the university of leeds which Kate often works with is one of those. Okay. But um, and there are places in the world where you can look at the monetary system in a in a way which is realistic. Uh, in Kansas City, there's a university called UMKC, 
which does that, Bard College in New York, uh, not really anywhere in Australia. Um, but there aren't any places, and this is as much as anything else while we put this course together, there aren't any places where you can put these two things together. Right. And we think you have to put these two things together because we think the federal government is vitally important if we are going to have people live in the future in you know in economic security with a much much less uneven distribution of income and wealth which we think is important if we're going to have uh, a, a sustainable future if we're going to plan for and bring that about then people need to understand the monetary system you can't just say i'm not interested in money and banking that doesn't work you have to get interested in a bit like if you go to yoga and there are some poses you don't like doing <laughs> those are the poses you have to do Damn it. you've yeah. got to learn these things and if uh, similarly um, there's no point understanding the monetary system if you're just going to go on and destroy the world just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking well we would really like to hear from you so you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org you can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes I want to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions-focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. So it makes sense to me why you're trying to bring these two things together and we'll circle back later about kind of what we would have the government do differently on a really practical level. If you've got some ideas there, you know, I've heard you on the jobs guarantee thing. think that's really interesting to unpack as well. You know, there's people talking about universal basic income and all kinds of things. But first, just to higher level it for people, understanding the monetary system, my very basic understanding of modern monetary theory is it says comparing a household budget to a nation is ridiculous. That in a context where you can literally print your own money or go onto a thing and add zeros to a digital spreadsheet and flood your economy with money, um, that the issue here is not that we just have to spend within our means. We have to think differently about our capacity and the real the real breaks are inflation. You know, do we have the resources both in terms of people and resources in order to spend this money? And if we do, great. And if we don't, then maybe we should think about, you know, not pumping too much into the economy because it will create inflation. So is that kind of right? Or is there a lot more to modern monetary theory that people don't get or misunderstand? There's a huge amount to it because it's the work of lots of very clever people over 30 years. Yeah. So anything we're going to say in a podcast anything we're is, going, say here and now, is going to be a Especially anything out two. of my mouth is going no, to be no. radically inadequate. Out of, out of out of anybody's mouth. You just can't. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's going to, it takes a long time because... It involves uh, a detailed uh, uh, study of not just, I mean, all, monetary systems are not all the same. So of monetary systems in general and the accounting and assets and liabilities and how private and public balance sheets fit together. But then you have to say, well, the US monetary system is not the same as the monetary system that Germany is part of. And the Eurozone system, well, you know, that's not the same as the monetary system, uh, a West African country using the CSA, CFA franc is part of. And there's lots of, so obviously there's a lot yeah. to it. But actually, I don't, well, I call myself an MMT economist. I don't start from MMT. I start from the higher purpose. The first thing I would do if I was the treasurer is shock everybody. I'd say, you know, we have to make some investments over the next few years. 
So GDP is going to grow over the next few years because it will include those investments and we need put in place alternatives before we start eliminating some of the things we're doing at the moment. But in 10 to 15 years' time, we are not going to be growing our economy anymore. We're going to have a different way of providing people with a better quality of life. But before we do that, we have to give people the means to have a good quality of life and to do so securely. And then, yes, you've got the federal job guarantee going in there, but you've got the let's use the monetary system to uh, while continuing to keep inflation low and stable transition to electrifying our economy and renewables much, much faster than we're currently planning to do, which is going to involve the government playing a much bigger role than we might have been told over the last 40 years is the best way to manage things. But over the last 40 years, we have been heading at an accelerating rate towards disaster and on a global level, carbon dioxide emissions will be at their record level in 2023 and they'll almost certainly be at a new record level in 2024 and 2025 and we need to do something about this on a per capita basis, when we look at research by Jason Hickel and other people, Australia, outside of you know uh, uh, Gulf countries that are exporting oil, Australia is the worst offender. So we have a moral obligation to be in the lead about doing something about this. And next time there's a COP meeting, we failed to deal with this for 30 years now. We have to we have to try and persuade the US and Europe and China, or at least two of those three, to start taking this seriously. But we can't do that unless we're taking it seriously. So we know the general direction that we need to go in. We know that communities that are going to be affected by the changes that we'll need to make because we need to transition out of coal at least very, very rapidly, at least where that coal uh, is is. Uh, apart from very narrow range of activities that we might not yet have an alternative for. Um, but coal mining communities, the good news is they're not, they're not hundreds of thousands of people involved. We, we need to support them in that. We need to ensure that they don't bear the burden disproportionately of the transition that we need to make. But there are lots of other investments we need to make too. If we want people to use private cars less, we need excellent public transport. If we want over time for people to uh, uh, to shift away from an obsession with uh, higher and higher income and, and uh, uh, um, overemployment, then we need to ensure that people have access to enough income and enough employment, and that employment should contribute towards the community and the environment shouldn't be making the problem worse. And there's a whole variety of other things too, but we need to have a plan there. And at the moment, there really isn't a plan other than let's put pressure on big polluters gradually to reduce the amount of pollution that they're generating and leave everything else to the market. That's the plan at the moment. That's, that's not going to get us there quickly enough and, and we are not playing an active enough role in, in leading the discussions internationally. Then beyond that, there has to be a massive transfer of technology, of real resources, in other words, from the global north to the global south. Because as I was saying earlier, most countries in the world do need to grow their economies, but they need to grow them in a way different to how we grew them. They can't build their wealth on fossil fuels and across most of Africa, we shouldn't be using fossil fuels that are ready to generate electricity. Most of these countries are very sunny. Uh, we really ought to be able to move rapidly to a, a situation where there's 100% uh, uh, renewables and that means a technology transfer and to pay for that technology transfer there needs to be financial resources provided, and those financial resources need to come 
from the monetary sovereign governments in the global north. And we're not talking about the trifling amounts discussed last year in Egypt. We are talking about something like 5% of our gross domestic product. And then you need to think about how we're going to manage inflation. And managing inflation, it turns out just jacking interest rates up is not the best way of doing that. Um, something we ought to be using much more actively than we have been is what's sometimes called macro prudential regulation. Uh, the Reserve Bank or the prudential regulator in Australia, APRA, between them should be limiting the amount of lending private banks are allowed to do and influencing the nature of that lending. So it should be going much more towards funding investments to transition us to a sustainable future. It should not be feeding spot speculation on financial markets or the property market. There's so many other things we could go on all day. I haven't got on to uh, public housing and homelessness and all sorts of other things. But the, the thing is, we're not dealing with any of these issues at the moment. I might just finish just to show how much we need to change things by telling you a, a, a little story. And before the last federal election, uh, the uh, Labour Party ran an event at the University of Adelaide where I was working. And because my students were involved in organising the event, I got to go and I was invited to ask a couple of questions. And the speaker was a very brilliant, albeit mainstream economist called Andrew Lee, who was the shadow deputy treasurer at the time. And he was talking about all sorts of ways in which Labour were going to be seriously taking on inequality. And the first question I asked him, because inequality has been rising continuously in Australia since 1975, almost without a break. I said, what have all the previous Labour governments since the early 1980s done wrong? Hmm. And his answer, the only answer he could give was, well, they haven't really done anything wrong. Um, and inequality has just increased around the world and there's not much we could do about it or anything. Um, so the second question, I said, well, in 1975, Labour had a Scandinavian level of inequality, sorry, Australia had a Scandinavian level of inequality. The Scandinavian countries still have a Scandinavian level of inequality. We don't. Uh, I said, you've been talking about inequality. Um, you and I both agree on the best way of measuring inequality. It's a statistic I won't bother people with. Um, I said, you set targets for a lot of things. We have an inflation target in Australia. You certainly mm. want to keep GDP growing or there'll be a recession. You've got a target for that. How about you set a target for inequality by how much you're going to reduce inequality in the first term or first couple of terms of a Labour government? After all, you are a Labour government or you will be when you get uh, elected. And that's really important if we're going to move towards a sustainable future. And he he was very honest. He looked at me and he said, I can't persuade my fellow members of the shadow cabinet to do that. That's where we've got to. We've got to the point where a Labour government is not really interested in inequality. We've got tax cuts for wealthy people that they're still planning to implement. And as we speak, they're resisting any pressure to raise uh, job seeker, and although young labor wants a job guarantee, there's that the, at the moment there are no plans for that on a federal level. And um, although I'm not opposed to a, a, a UBI, there it's not UBI or federal job guarantee, but I do have to tell people there is absolutely zero probability of that happening under a labor government in the foreseeable future, it's just not going to happen. In Australia. Um, so we, um, we have to push for other things to, to deal with these issues. But that's the set of circumstances we're in at the moment. At least they're taking climate change more seriously than the previous government, although we're still opening up gas fields. Um, but this is why, not just in Australia, but around the world, we need lots of extraordinarily well-informed people getting involved in campaigning organisations and by all means, joining the Labour Party too and, and taking it over and changing it because the next 40 years are not going to be like the last 40. They're going to be different. And the only thing that's uncertain is how they're going to be different.
Gabby, I want to throw to you on that because with your campaigner hat on, you know, politicians would say, look, if we get out too far in front of the people, we just get, you know, hammered in the media. We, we lose the next election. The opposition takes us down. So I hear that a huge part of your theory of change is building up people with the knowledge to then go out and, and join and lead and infiltrate all of these different organizations where they can affect change. How do we convince the politicians who want to be convinced, the people like Andrew Lee in the meantime, that they're not just going to get screwed if they get a little bit brave on this? I mean, why shouldn't we measure inequality? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And I don't think there's an easy answer. But I, I do think a lot of it comes back to framing and the language that we use to talk about, uh, you know, the problems that we have and, and the future that we want. And um, I'm not a great expert on framing, but I have learned a lot from sort of listening to Stephen talk and reading and listening to um, Anat Shankar, Sario and, and people who are um great experts. I've recently read the um, George Lakoff book, Don't Think of an Elephant, which is very illuminating. Um, and I think, like, I, I guess to sum it up, um, my, my, my sort of, my conclusion is that the people in charge basically like things the way they are now. They're quite happy with the way they are. And um, I don't, um, I think the there is there are alternatives like um I, i'm a member of the greens and i'm i'm cer certainly supportive of um greens politicians and candidates and and greens policies and i think if the greens have a lot of power or more power than they currently do and they keep growing their power that will be a good thing for australia um and around the world obviously um so i would love to see a kind of great big movement on the left. Uh, Labor have kind of moved across. They're basically a right wing party now. I'm. I, I don't think I'd be <laughs> lying if I said that. Um, you know, we've got the the in Australia we've got the coalition, which are way over on the right to the the kind of extreme right. Then we've got the Labor Party, which is basically to the right of centre. And there's a, there's a, a a bit of a gap there on the other side and I don't really know what's going to happen but I think what what we need to do is get better at talking about the future that we want and not to buy into the frames that the other side has used so successfully for decades things like the government as a household right and one of my pet peeves, for example, is saying that um, taxpayer money pays for things. And although that might be true at a state government level or a local government level, it's really damaging at a federal level because it's just not true. Um, and to be, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. To be fair to Adam Bant, he rarely says that now. He usually says public money. And also to be fair to the Labor Party, there are some fantastic young politicians in the Labor Party one of whom came to an event we ran in Sydney last year and has done, not because of us, but done, has done some great speeches. Shireen Morris, the legal academic, um, she was a candidate. She didn't actually get elected last time around. There are some brilliant young people, Lachlan McCall, who until recently was the chief economist at the ACTU, and I think is, is going to work in a campaigning organisation now he's not at the ACTU anymore he he was in the treasury in the federal treasury um prior to that um framing so important i would just say that the one big shift I mean, people like us ecological ecological issues were not take were not really considered then um because it's really only since 1970 we're told that we've been living at a global level unsustainably by the uh, uh, the global footprint network anyway but um, after the Second World War, people like us did take over. It took two world wars, a pandemic and a Great Depression, but they did. And it took 40 years for the neoliberals to take over again. And you said, let's not get out in front of the people. But actually, the person who changed the world was Margaret Thatcher. And she disagreed with you. She did go out. In 1975, she became the leader of the Conservative Party in the UK. She was very uh, unpopular for a while, but she took advantage of a, an energy crisis. 
And she just said, no, 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 I don't care what everybody else says. This is what I think is right. And she won in the end. She won. She didn't just take over the Conservative Party. She took over the Labour Party as well. And she was asked towards the end of her life, what's your greatest achievement? She said, Tony Blair. <laughs> oh, that's so depressing. She could yeah. have said Paul Keating. Yeah. Just yeah. as well. Or Bill Clinton. Or know, Bill Clinton. Who is yeah. still beloved. Yeah. Absolutely right. But the good news is if they can transform the world, we can transform it back. And we've got our own series of crises for sure. Oh, um, definitely. With no shortage of opportunity in that. And circling back to the very start of this conversation, you know, the opportunities that COVID gave us in that disruption. Um, I was listening to another podcast recently where they were saying it was like we trusted people during COVID, you know, it was like, okay, let's just double the rate of unemployment. Yep. Okay. You know, there was this automatic sense of like, we're in a real crisis and all that neoliberal stuff actually doesn't matter and actually isn't true. And we kind of always knew that anyway. So we're just going to do what actually works, which is to give people the support that they need to like live good and safe lives. If I was to be a bit negative about that, I might say that politicians, they treat uh, those of us, I mean, they, they describe unemployed as though they're 19 year olds who are just being lazy when it's very often, well, I don't know, a 58 year old woman who's got divorced and, and doesn't have any super and, of course, is not, doesn't qualify to spend it yet anyway. Um, and uh, outside of, of being close to full employment, the type of jobs that are available might not be, if you've got a touch, touch of uh, arthritis, they might not be the kind of jobs you can do working in a fast food place or something like that. So you're stuck unemployed. That's, that's the typical unemployed person. But the normal view is... The unemployed are not like us. That's just, but what happened in the pandemic is suddenly people like us will be were at risk of becoming unemployed. <laughs> but the other thing, which I, uh, the, the great thing about the pandemic, it showed that if governments decide to make changes, really major changes, they can do it overnight. They really can. Yeah, it was shocking the how quickly things turned on a dime and how much grace and willingness there was from the population and, and trust in government went up. And we went, OK, you're not going to get everything right. We haven't faced this before in our lifetimes. We might make some bad calls, but you know what? We think you're trying to do the right thing. And so we're going to we're going to do our best to kind of back you. And I know there wasn't universal support for every universal thing that happened during COVID, but there was a broad sense of, you know, that cliche of we're all in this together. So let's give yeah, it a go. They basically switched off poverty. Yeah. Even in the US, I mean, doubling the child tax credit overnight took millions of American kids out of poverty. And I, th I think although it didn't last and it didn't capture everybody, it's still now an example that people can point to to say better things are possible. Change, yeah, it used yeah, to be. I change think, is possible. Um, used to be convincing people that change was possible was the hard thing. And I think now in Australia, we've had this lived experience not only of a pandemic, but of these, you know, incredibly catastrophic fires and floods. And we are feeling a visceral sense that all is not going to just carry on as normal, that are real changes and it's just a matter of kind of how are we going to navigate them. And I, I think social licence for the kinds of polluting activities that big companies do is becoming more difficult. I know, I know there's been a lot in the, the kind of in the news about the Adani group and, um, uh, you know, the, the Carmichael coal mine and all of those places and the fracking in the Beetaloo and people are, getting out of their comfort zones and actually doing disruptive protests about those, those projects that are going to destroy lives and, and cause extinctions. Um, and I'm part of groups that are involved in that. And uh, I think more and more people are getting to the point where that becomes a logical conclusion for the direction that we're heading in. And, um, yeah, I think... I think that that kind of that kind of disruptive protest and nonviolent direct action is a big part of making change because you've got to have the radical flank, right? 
And so, yeah. Yeah. Gabby's in XR and I'm in the XR cheer squad. I'm not in XR. But um, you need also the positive side. Uh, And again, that goes back to the psychologists and and cognitive linguists like George Lakoff. We need to be able to say not just, oh, you, you can't keep digging this stuff up from under the ground and burning it, but also we don't need to. There's a better future. I love that. And look, for anyone who's listening to this and just going, oh, my God, this excites me, but it terrifies me, or I don't quite know where to start, or I'd like to get my head around it. Yes, there is the Torrens University course, which we will absolutely link to. And I love that you're making it available to people who want to do a full master's, as well as people who are like, I just need the knowledge and I don't have time to go back to university. So let me do the course on a non-degree basis, or at least the first subject and really get into this stuff. So I think that's amazing. You're also doing weekend intensives, which I think is really cool. We are going to be linking to those. So the course will be starting up again in June. Um, there are weekends intensives. There's one coming up like in May. So you can go check that out through the link in your show notes. There's the action group that you mentioned, um, the sustainable prosperity action group, which really appeals to kind of the campaigners among us who are trying to get our head around economics. So, you know, we'll be linking to all of these things. I think that if we talked a lot more about this and a lot less about the culture wars, we would be setting a positive proactive agenda that we would win. And I think there's Absolutely. a real reason why the right try to keep us distracted with, but wait, you know, because that they, they know, right. They know that's where they can make inroads. Um, whereas we're actually talking about the stuff that like we all agree on, like, yeah, we want a sustainable prosperity for ourselves and our kids. Um, that they don't have the answers there, you know, it's, it, unfortunately. I mean, beyond just let's hope technology will save us and yeah. keep giving shareholders the the reins. <laughs> like, um, you both have been so fantastic. I could talk to you for another three hours, but I know that everyone's got to get um, back on with their day. Thanks, Thank you so much. Lily. Any thoughts you, you want to say be. before we finish up? Um, if people like reading books and they haven't read these books yet, of course you should have read Kate Ryle's Donor Economics. Uh, Jason Hickel's Less is More, and there's another great book on inequality called The Divide, which okay. Jason wrote. And maybe Mariana Mazzucato's Mission Economy book, and especially our dear friend Stephanie Kelton's Deficit Myth book. She's one of Gabby and my best friends, and in my opinion, the best economist in the world. So that's the book. If you've got, if there's one book I'd like you to read, it's that one. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. And you've, you've named a few that are on my reading list right now. Sure. And I've just finished Mission Economy, which I loved. Um, but yeah, great recommendation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. Lily. Thank you, Lily. It's been a joy to talk to you. Cheers, guys. finished recording, Stephen and Gabby told me that the best thing about teaching this course they've been offering has been watching the students, meeting the students who's in the room and how they're interacting and coming together from literally all over the world and everything from professional journalists and policymakers and professors through to musicians and you know just people who are interested in this because wow finally an economics degree that seems relevant to the real world so I hope that it's given you a lot to think about and even if there's stuff you disagree with or you're not sure um, that you'll sort of stick with us this season as we talk to different experts about our economy and all of the issues that that plugs into and where we want to go next because It is, after all, our imagination and our ability to envision something new that gives humans our big advantage (laughs) on this planet. And I really do believe that our future can be one of a different kind of abundance uh, and a better one rather than austerity. So until next time, I'm Lily. Thank you so much for listening to The Remakers. Remakers.